Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Generator's going to kick in. They said they were going to kick in. (laughs) You guys going to be with your cell phone light so that we can see... (laughs) But at the end of the day, really fun to be here this morning. Family, welcome this morning as we journeying through this book of Philippians in the series called Worthy of a Year for the first time. Um, I say this every week, but every week I do believe that it's true. It's a great morning to be here. It's a great morning as we can um, see what it means to find righteousness in Jesus Christ. If you don't know who I am, my name is Reinhard or Renkies. I'm the pastor here at Red Door Church. Friday night, we had an unbelievable night with all the singles in the church called Swipe Right. It was phenomenal. It was a lot of fun. Um, some deep questions and discussions that came out of that. Definitely things that I wasn't thinking about or wondering about when I was um, some of the people's age that asked those questions. So it was fun to see exactly where people are on their journeys. And it's good for us as a church to know... That every phase of relationship, God calls a gift, and the one gift isn't more important than the other. And especially what we were talking about Friday night is the gift of singleness. And just um, one, it's good being single. It's great being single. In fact, it's a gift of God, and God has a unique plan for everyone that is single and how to use them at that phase of their life. And it's good for us as a church to recognize that as well. And to say it in this gathering that we want to celebrate singleness and we want to celebrate the way that God uses the gift of singleness to serve not only his church but also his kingdom. Amen? Amen. There we go. We've prayed before, but um, in the midst of distractions and everything, let me pray for us again as we're going to dive into God's word. Well done, the guys are getting the projector working as well. Let's pray. Father God, we are in desperate need of you this morning. We are famished. We are thirsty. We are barren. We are like people wandering through a desert. And Father, there might be some of us that don't even realize this. We, we hallucinate. We see mirages of paradise around us and we think that we've achieved it. We think that we've arrived and yet the food that we eat and the Water that we drink becomes ash in our mouth if it's not centered around you. And so we pray this morning that our desperation would drive us to find real satisfaction, to find real fulfillment within you, even as we enjoyed the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray that you would quiet our minds and quiet our hearts as we think through what needs to happen maybe today, maybe this week, maybe things, bills that needs to be paid. Tests that needs to be written, kids that needs to be fed. Right now, all that we need is you. And so, Father, we we thank you that you say in your word that you are willing to give yourself to us as well for those who ask. And so, Lord, we ask, perform a miracle this morning in all of our hearts for your glory and our benefit. Amen. Family, what's your code by which you order your life? Have you ever thought about that? 
We all have an internal code by which we decide what is right and what is wrong. How do I decide that I'm on the right track or on the wrong track? And this is true of everyone, irrespective of whether you're a Christian or not, whether you call yourself a good person or not. We all have this, what we call a moral compass in, the, in our hearts. This is true even of criminals. This is true of gangs. They have a, a code amongst thieves. Pirates have the pirate code. Gangs know that snitches get stitches. And so there's even this thing about which there's this way in which you order your life by deciding for your group of people or for your life, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. It'll be interesting to hear from all of our different cultural backgrounds, what are some of those things? What are some of those things that you consider as kosher or non-kosher? What are some of those things that you say, well, this is acceptable in life and this is unacceptable in life? And particularly today, what we want to see is what are some of those things that you need to do so that you think you are right in life? The Bible uses a particular word when it describes this status of being in the right, on the right track. It uses a word called righteousness. And the biblical word actually refers to being in right standing with God. And so what are some of those things that you do that you think position yourself in such a way that God is happy with you and that God is happy with your life? Or maybe a better way to ask this is where do you find your righteousness? Where do you go to to think that you are a good person, and on the right track. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about this morning. Paul, in this series so far, we've seen in the book of the Philippians, or to the Philippian church, he has encouraged the church to not only accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to allow that message of Jesus to shape every area of their lives. He's shown us how Jesus is the model and motivation for our lives to live lives that are changed by the gospel. Last week, Jason preached and he showed us how this change or transformation actually happens within a faith community, how God uses brothers and sisters to help us change and transform into his image. And throughout the book, one of the things that we've noticed is this repeating theme of joy that Paul is encouraging his church let this be for your joy. Make sure that you rejoice in God. Even today's passage, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And we're almost heading towards the back end of the letter where he's going to practically show us what are some of the ways that we can find this joy in the Lord. Today, however, he's talking about some of those things that might sabotage your joy. Let's call them joy stealers or, or thieves of joy. What are some of those things that we should avoid as a church that can steal our joy from the Lord? And so Paul makes two things regarding this. He says that um, the way that we are robbed of our joy in the Lord if we don't understand or know where we should find our righteousness if we don't know what are some of those areas or those things in our lives that we should look to that actually places us in right standing with God. And so he's going to make two points today. If you're a note-making person, two notes where it says, where do we find our righteousness and why should we find our righteousness in that particular place? So two things, where do we find our righteousness 
and why should we find our righteousness in that particular place? And all of this within the context so that we can rejoice within the Lord. So read with me from verse 1 as we dive into what it means or where we should find our righteousness. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me as it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul starts this passage and he starts uh, his encouragement for the church of where they can find their joy and where they should find their righteousness. And he starts it with a stern warning. Watch out for the dogs who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And so it's interesting, Paul is referring here to a group of Christians called the Judaizers. This is a group that believed in Jesus and believed in the grace of God, but they also held that the Levitical laws of Moses needed to be observed and adhered to. Specifically, or particularly, that every male should still be circumcised that came to faith. And so Paul does not mince his words when he talks about this group. He views them as dogs mutilating the flesh. This is very illustrative language. Now, I don't know what picture is coming up in your mind. Uh, Paul is not talking about the cute chihuahuas that people carry in their handbags, like Legally Blonde or whatever other picture you have within, you know, these suburb dogs. You know, that look all entitled. You know, they know they sleep in a bed and have better food than I do and stuff like that. That's not the dogs that Paul is referring to here. Every time that the Bible refers to dogs in the Old Testament, it was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of being at the lowest form of the chain. If someone were to die and dogs were to lick up your blood, it was a sign of judgment. Dogs were very close to still being viewed as wild dogs. You know, it was... Not even the Ikasi dogs. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, not even allowed within the home. Paul views them as that. If you were associated with dogs, then you were as low as you could go. It is a form of judgment. Mutilating the flesh is a strong derogatory way of referring to circumcision. It, it sounds like circumcision gone wrong. Instead of going to a proper doctor, you wanted to save money, you went to the guy around the corner and it did not go well. <laughs> that's, 
Basically, Paul saying mutilating the flesh. He is he's trying to describe exactly what he's feeling about this group. And we've got to ask the question: why the strong reaction and why the stern warning to the church? Well, let's get some background in what it means to be a Judaizer and why the law was so particularly important to them. So we've got to remember originally as the nation of Israel was formed as a nation, as God became their God, God gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the Levitical ordinances, the law through Moses, some of the rituals that they needed to perform within the temple and the tabernacle. And God initially gave the law as a railroad track to guide Israel's obedience, to help them see how much they needed God, how much they actually needed the grace of God, and to help them see how much different God is from the other nations. And because God is so different, they as a nation needed to live different. That's in essence what it means to live holy. Holy means to be different. And so God gave them this law to help them see how they were to live different lives. And part of the fact what the law should do is actually remind them that they can't keep the law. The more they try to keep, the more they failed. And so the law should be pointing towards God. God, give us grace. Help us because we can't keep this law. It should remind them of the fact that they actually need a savior, that they need a God to guide them and to show them mercy in the fact that they can't keep the law. But unfortunately, this did happen for a while, but as time went on, the law became something else, or the meaning of law became something else. Instead of showing the covenant people of God how much they needed God, it became a measuring stick. It became a pedestal to measure their own holiness. They started using the law in a way to measure up against one another. How am I doing against my fellow brother and sister? Am I doing better than them? It became something, instead of reminding them of grace that they needed, it became a podium to stand on to see how close can I get to God? How holy am I? How lucky is God to have me to be part of his kingdom? It's into this circumstance that God also gave a sign for the people of God to be known as the covenant people. And this was the circumcision. This was a physical sign to denote this is the covenant people of God. We fast forward to Jesus and Jesus came and it's very clear that Jesus said himself that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. This means two things. One, it meant that Jesus was the one that kept the law perfectly when no one else was able to. Two, it meant that Jesus fulfilled the law in that all the rituals, all, every, everything that was happening in the temple and all the sacrifices was actually a shadow pointing towards our need for Jesus. The Jews would have recognized this. They should have recognized Jesus and their need for a savior if they recognized their need for grace. But they didn't. Because they started using the law for their own holiness. So they missed Jesus. And they crucified their Savior. However, what the world and Satan meant for evil, God used for good. Within Jesus' perfect life, we now get righteousness. Within his death on the cross, we have the sacrifice for sins. And within his resurrection from the dead, we have the victory over death and sin. So that now everyone who believes in Jesus 
can receive grace from God, can be in right standing with God, can now be right with God. This is what we mean when we say that we have a righteousness in Christ. We have peace with God. Fast forward even further, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see that as Christianity grew, as is often the point with people, some twist the message. We see some splinter groups happening within Christianity. Some are twisting the message of the gospel. And in this specific instance, we see the Judaizers who aren't twisting the message, but they are adding to the message. They do believe that Jesus, in fact, was God. We, they do believe that he did come to give forgiveness and that he did come to give grace. But they, what they're saying is, the grace of Jesus is great, but you need something extra. You also need the law. You also need the circumcision just to make sure that you're in right standing with God. Jesus brought you 90% of the way. Now you just need that extra 10% from your own effort. And they, <laughs> that's the weird thing of saying, basically it means having Jesus, but just to make sure you have fire insurance. Also do A, B, and C. We even see that today, don't we? we? We actually come across a lot of people who aren't necessarily Christians, but they do some Christian-y things just to make sure that they have some sort of fire insurance, trying to good, be good people. Just in case there's a God, he probably, he'll be happy with me because I'm not a bad person. At least I'm not as bad as the person across from me. And so Paul wants to make a clear distinction between those that worship and live in this way. They hold on to Jesus, but they also want to add A, B, and C. And between those that only rely on the death and resurrection of Jesus, that only hold on to Jesus. He calls this group the true circumcision, meaning the true covenant people of God. Those who only hold on to Christ, those are the ones that worship in spirit and in truth. We are the real chosen people. And here's why. He says, if you really wanted to rely on the flesh, meaning on your own ability to get close to God, on your own ability to observe the law, if you wanted to start the compare game, well, let's, let's start it. And Paul gives his religious CV, just in case they were wondering who they're speaking to. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That is the right day as the law prescribed it, on which you should be circumcised. He is of the nation of Israel, a purebred. He wasn't adopted into the nation, and so he is part of the covenantal people of God, born into that covenantal people. Within that nation, he is of the clan of Benjamin. That is the beloved clan. And so of the 12 clans of Israel, he is now also part of the beloved clan. He is a true Hebrew as thoroughbred as you could get. As to the keeper of the law, he got the office of Pharisee. This is the people who not only religiously followed the law, knew the law, they were teachers of the law. He ascended to the top of the religious la ladder. As to enthusiasm, not only did he teach the law, not only did he knew the law, but he enforced the law. He was so desperate in defending the heritage of Judaism that he persecuted the church of Christ, that he threw people into prison. And it might not seem that impressive to us today, but back in the day, in that context, there's not a lot of people that has a more impressive CV than Paul. 
in terms of religiosity. How holy you can get. He is as holy as they come. And yet he says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. Two images he used here. The one is an accounting term. Do we have some accountants in the house? Some? Okay, we'll have to explain this because I, um, I, I forgot my accounting once I left school. But basically what he said was two columns, David and credit. The things that in the past counted for him to his credit that gave him good standing in his mind, he now counts as debt, as loss, as something that not only he doesn't need, but it actually detracts from him. The second image that he used, he says that he counts it not only as a loss, but he counts it as a rubbish. The English is being very kind here. The Greek word for rubbish in this sentence is dung. It's excrement. It's poop. It's the only place in the Bible where you find this word. Maybe to illustrate this... Um, Parents love keeping mementos of their kids. It's just something we do. We love taking photos. We love their first drawing, we'll keep. Um, and then it gets weird. Their first haircut, we keep some of their hair. The first tooth fall out, we keep the tooth. It's almost like we're serial killers, you know, keeping these things. But um, it's what we do and it reminds us of just, you know, the period that the kids went through and how special it was. And we want to keep that memento to remember that by. But you know what is the one thing that we don't keep? Dirty nappies. <laughs> Not only don't you keep it, you want to, if, if, <laughs> if they switch to eating solid foods, guys, <laughs> you want to remove that as quickly as possible from your presence and from your home. Those things are nasty. <laughs> There's no parent in their right mind that would keep something like that as a memento. You don't want to have anything to do with it. And that's Paul's view of his religious CV. All the things that he thought made him a good person or gave him some spiritual clout. Here's why what Paul is getting at. The cross of Christ is by definition unmerited grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but a free gift of God. Not as a result of works or keeping the law or being a good person or being obedient or being nice to your neighbor so that no one may boast. Paul knows, he knows this truth so deep in his bones that the moment you bring anything extra to the table of the gospel, it doesn't bring an imbalance to the table, it destroys the table. When you add anything to the message of the gospel, you actually lose the whole message of the gospel in its entirety. Paul, in his desperation to have Christ, to gain Christ, to know God, if anything remotely threatens this, Reality, he wants to remove it from him as far as possible. There is nothing 
that he will or wants to boast and accept the message of the cross. Paul, through his own experience, even by being the super good guy, realized that no matter how high you build this podium, you still hopelessly fall short of the grace of God. Hopelessly fall short of being in right standing with God. There's nothing that we can build to reach the heavens. And I wonder what that is for us today. I think we've got so many people that want to bring a gift to God so that God would look onto the gift and feel compelled to invite us to the table. God, look at my good life. Look at my gifts. Look at the way that I'm actually trying to be a good person and the way that I'm sacrificially loving my wife or my kids or my neighbor or the environment that I'm in. Look at the way that I'm giving money away. I'm such a good person. Aren't you just lucky to accept me, O Lord? Somehow thinking that we've built up that pedestal. And in fact, the more we built up that pedestal, we're actually not climbing the ladder of grace to God. And we're missing it. And Paul is saying, in that view, you've got to realize what your true state is. We are hopelessly lost. We're hopelessly in need of a savior. The only way that we can be right before God is if we rely on not anything that we have or that we can bring to the table, but simply cling to Christ. To be under the banner of his blood. That's why we, the church is called Red Door. It refers back to the story in Exodus when the 10 plagues were happening and the 10th plague was the penalty of death. It was the angel of death that was going to come and strike every firstborn in Egypt. But everyone who believed in God and in the promise of God, they were to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint their doors and the doorpost red. And everyone that was inside the house under that blood was saved from death. And Paul is saying, I want to get into that house. I want to go enter through that red door, but you can't bring anything with you. The only thing that you can have is come empty and knock on the door and Christ will open. And you're welcomed in, free of charge. Family, where do you find your righteousness? What do you think we sometimes bring to the table that we think that God should accept us? Is it your religion? What's the right word? Religiosity, if that is such a word. I don't know. Is it the way that you think, at least I go to church, at least I've, <laughs> I've been a Christian for the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Is it for the fact that you actually contribute? Is it for the fact that you know a lot about the Bible, that you think that you are entitled to this grace? Maybe it's your strong sense of morality, the way that you look after your family, the way that you've been brought up, the way that you actually try to be a good person. Is that the thing that you think brings you in right standing with God? Maybe it's your success, the, the fact that you've always done well. At school, you've succeeded. At uni, you've done well. In work, you've done well. And because you're su succeeding in life, obviously God's got to be happy with you. And so I'm not really in need of grace. I'm not desperate. We need to develop a kind of desperation that Paul has to come and seek only Christ. If we don't, we become this people that look down on the people around us, that think that we're better than others. Willie always says this, that we are not beggars just showing other beggars where we can find bread. 
I'm a sinner in need of grace. Great is my sin. Great is the grace that has been given us. The only place where we can be in right standing with God is with Jesus. We're not saying that we shouldn't live a changed life. We're not saying that we shouldn't be Christians that are good to the world around us. What we're saying is those aren't the things that allows us to be part of the family. Those are the things that happen because we are part of the family. Because we have received the family name, we now live different lives. You might be sitting here this morning asking, well, why would I, why would I want to be right with God? what's the perks of being part of this family? That's a good question. It is something that Paul actually addresses. There should be something that we want to ask why we want to be part of this. Read with me verses 10 to 11. Three things that Paul says, why we should find our righteousness in Christ. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Three reasons to have the righteousness of Christ, so that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection, that I might attain resurrection from the dead. First one, to know him. If you haven't read it already, there's a book that I do believe every Christian at some part in our lives do need to read, a classic from an author called J.I. Packer, and the title of the book is Knowing God. It's a phenomenal treatise on what it means to actually know God. And right at the beginning of the book, he makes this big distinction of the difference of knowing about God and then knowing God. It's obviously a relational difference. And then then goes on to explain the only way that we can know God is firstly, and this is important, if we are known by God. The only way that we can know God is to be in relationship with him, but there's nothing that we can do to actually enter into this relationship. It's only once we are known by God. And he has made this possible in Jesus. And as we start to know God in a deep relational sense and not merely facts about God, this changes us because you get to know God's character. We know a lot of things about God. Cognitively, we've heard that he is all-powerful. Cognitively, we've heard that he is good and kind. Cognitively, we know that he's involved with our lives. But if we know this in a relational sense and we get to know the character of God, it changes how we relate with everything. Suddenly, even the difficult things in my life, I'm asking the question, how is God at work in this difficult phase of my life? How's God actually using this to draw me closer to him? How's God revealing himself to me right now? Because as I get to know his character, I know that he is not just all powerful, but that he is a kind God. He wants the best for me, and he knows the best for me is to actually be plugged into his life. And so family, do you know about God or do you know God? Do you know that through Jesus we can be known by God. Knowing God gives us great energy for God, great thoughts for God, great boldness for God, great 
contentment in God. It changes the character of the Christian. Secondly, why we want to have our righteousness in Christ is that we may know the power of the resurrection. Can't wait to get all charismatic in here. This is an important point. What happened at the resurrection, remember Jesus bore the brunt, all the sin of the world he carried on his shoulders. It's not just the physical pain that he endured, it's also the onslaught of Satan and all his cronies trying to keep Jesus down, trying to keep Jesus within the grave. It's physical death that he had to overcome. So at the resurrection, not only did he then overcome all the sin, not only did he defeat death, overcame death, but he also defeated Satan. And so Satan is a strong man. We read this in the Bible. He's definitely a strong man. There is some power that he possesses in this world, but Jesus is stronger. And what Paul is saying, the moment that we know Christ, we also get to experience the power of his resurrection. Meaning that nothing in this life has the final say about who and what you are. Sin, addiction, things that you struggle with, personality disorders, character flaws, Christ has overcome it. By knowing Christ, by being found in his righteousness, we have access to this transformation and this change. Not only is there the physical (coughs) resurrection from the death, but also a spiritual one. He is the one that is able to actually bring renewal and transformation in your life. Not only that, but God has defeated all of his enemies. And so even though the minor battles are still happening within our flesh and within the world, even though there will be sufferings as we read here that we'll experience, we know that those things don't have the final say. God is still sovereign, still in control. And the crazy thing is, even if we were to lose our very lives in the service of God, even death won't have the final say. Which brings us to our final point. Every person is destined to die once and then comes judgment. The question that we've got to ask ourselves, will you die twice? Will you die once in this world and then secondly, spiritually, not experience resurrection to have fellowship with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit for all eternity? To have this world be made new, made perfect, everything working like it should be. Everything, all unclarity removed, all sin removed. Rejoicing with God and cultivating a new heavens and a new earth with him. Man, that's what's in store. Paul, Paul is not just saying, you know, worship God because he's worth it. He's also saying, man, this new heavens and new earth is worth investing in. As we share even in the sufferings of Christ, meaning we we holding on to the gospel, the promise remains that we will one day experience resurrection from the dead. Family, ultimately, how Paul will explain this further in the letter is trying to rely on your own strength will steal your joy because we will never be enough. The insecurities and the fears will always plague you. The moment we accept grace and adoption as sons and daughters, this weight of performance is taken off our shoulders. Fear is taken away. And the thing that we're spending especially a lot of time in is peace and contentment will enter into our lives. 
There's a reason why we call this the rat race. Everyone is running. Everyone is trying to bring fulfillment, to find contentment. I don't know what that is for your life. I don't know what your moral code has been up until now. What do you think you need to do to be right with yourself, with the world, or with God? But I think at least what we need to acknowledge to one another, that none of those things will ever be enough. In fact, those things that you think will be enough steals your joy. The invitation is open and free to everyone this morning. Even as we tasted the juice and ate the bread, we've got to recognize how Jesus gave himself for us. And only Christ and nothing extra. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this morning. We want to recognize that we are filled with insecurities and fear. Because deep down, we actually do know that we never measure up to the expectation of ourselves, of the people around us, but most of all, of your expectations. We fail constantly. And yet, because of this, we either try and hide it or we try and compensate for it with success or morality. We try to compensate with it by not even thinking about it, denying your existence, running away from you, running after other things. And at the end of the day, as we even run after those things and we somehow catch the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, we see it turning into ash and just not giving the fulfillment and joy that we were after all along. We see how those things actually steal our joy. We see this within church, Father, as we tend to forget that we've been saved by grace. And so we pray this morning that we would be a church that continually reminds one another, even as we confess to one another, even as we disciple one another, that we don't just tell one another, but do better and be better, but rather that we would be found in you, Jesus. God, that we would be known by you. What a, what a wonderful thing it would be to be able to say confidently, I know God, I know him, because I am known by him. Father, we pray that that would be true, that we would be desperate that that would be true of our lives. We thank you, we love you, and we ask all of this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.